Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to expand consciousness, stimulate thought, enhance mental and physical health, and encourage community. If you listeners want to call in during this program, the phone number here is 707-937-5103. You can also email us directly at dj at kzyx.org. Archives of our program can be found at mindbodyhealthpolitics.org and on the KZYX website on something called Jukebox. Today, we're going to have an exciting and fun-filled interview with Dr. Stella Resnick, one of our country's foremost certified sex therapists. She does sex therapy work with couples at her practice in Beverly Hills, California. So stay tuned for this interview. But first our usual news and notes in psychology and medicine. As you've heard me say over and over again, and I continue to say because it continues to be in the news, the overweight obesity epidemic is the number one problem facing the United States today. And I say that unhesitatingly, including all the problems we have with various other diseases, with troubles around the world. Presently, 40% of the women and 35% of the men in these United States are obese. This is the first time in all of recorded history that the obese have a higher percentage than the overweight. Together, overweight and and obese people make up close to 70% of the American population. Right now, 10% of American women are in the highest category of of obesity, which is morbid obesity. This is beyond uh, obesity. If you want to know more about where you personally are, go to Google and type in BMI, body mass index, and it will take you to a calculator so you can figure out uh, just what your BMI is and where you are in these percentages. Just to give you an example, though, the women who are in this 10% category, averaging 5 foot 4 inches tall, all weigh over 233 pounds. The fallout, folks, is just dramatic. It's dramatic in diabetes. It's dramatic in cardiovascular diseases. It's dramatic in quality of life. And what can we do about it? Well, one of the things we're doing about it is we have endorsements by pop stars. And the latest research indicates that most of the products that are being promoted by the pop stars are unhealthy. Yes, unhealthy. Of the 26 endorsed foods that were recently researched that pop stars were pushing, 21 of them were high in calories and deemed nutritionally poor Of 69 non-alcoholic beverages pop stars were pushing, 49 were full of sugar. Exposure to food marketing turns out to promote excess consumption, increased purchase requests, and higher preference for the products amongst children and adults. Celebrity endorsements are particularly influential, and unfortunately, they're negative. So, and what's happening as a result of this? some of the medical journals are now saying, is overweight the new normal? 
Chairs are getting larger. Chairs on airplanes are supposedly about to get larger. Clothes are getting larger. And at the rate we're going, by 2030, 87% of the American public, that's 87% of the American public, are going to be overweight or obese. We've got to turn this ship around, folks. We must turn this ship around. And we're going to have programs in the future on how to make some progress in this. But for now, what can you do? Read the labels on what you eat. Walk a little bit more. Take small steps. Get together with friends. I think maybe one of the biggest things we can do, no pun intended in the word biggest, is talk to each other about it. If we're overweight, we know we're overweight. Let's talk to our friends about being overweight and see what we can do in community. Remember, and part of the mission statement is to encourage community, and part of what community is about is talking to each other about what our human problems are. Hey, 70% of us are, are suffering from this. We're in the majority. We can team up and see what we can do. Am I getting a note from you, Michael? Let's see what it says here. Okay, well, hmm, nothing I can do about that right now. In 1985, Joey Tranquina, who appeared on this radio program a few years ago, started giving out needles in Palo Alto, California. Sometimes Joey, in one day, would take in 500 dirty needles and give out 1,000. He was a pioneer in something called needle exchange and harm reduction. Several years ago, we had Dr. Marsha Rosenbaum on this program. She was West Coast head of the Drug Policy Alliance. You've heard the uh, founder of the Drug Policy Alliance, Dr. Ethan Nadelman, on this program as well. Marsha was coming on the program to talk about the success of needle exchange. But the U.S. government has had such a moralistic attitude about anything to do with making life easier for, quote, drug addicts, that the White House actually called this program 10 minutes before we were going to go on air, and Dr. David Murray got on the phone. He was the White House's drug czar at the time. Some of you may remember him. And he wanted to come on the program at the last minute because he heard that Dr. Marsha Rosenbaum was going to be on the program, and she was going to talk in favor of needle exchange, and he wanted to retort against it. This comes from moralism. It does not come from science. But the reason I'm talking about this now is that the latest scientific research on needle exchange indicates very strongly that needle exchange saves lives. It saves lives of the addicts who are using the needles and it prevents the spread of AIDS to the rest of the population. So here's a place where science did win out and we're very pleased. You know, I think it's safe to assume that if you're listening to this program, you're interested in your personal health. How interested are you? Just how interested are you? To what depths are you willing to go to care for your personal health? How much of a priority are you willing to make for your health? How much time and energy are you willing to dedicate to your health? I mean, are you a person who gets your car oil changed and does some preventive work? Or do you wait till you break down on the side of the road, sometimes inconveniently, in the middle of the night? Do you think your health requires time and energy? Do you believe in, in prevention? Prevention. 
doing something so you don't break down in the middle of the night. How do you feel about taking measures which may prevent disease? These are important questions. Do you go about each day assuming your health will take care of itself? How many years of my life did I do that? Just sort of took it for granted. But it's not something to be taken for granted. Have you ever created any sort of health plan for yourself? How many of us do that? Actually sit down and make a health plan. Do we think there's value in such a plan? Do you have an inner guess about how long you're going to live? Interesting question, huh? How long am I going to live? Are you satisfied with the number? Do you believe you can affect your lifespan? How confident in your position are you that you can affect your lifespan? And if you were certain you could influence your lifespan and also knew it would take sacrifice, are you willing to make significant sacrifice in order to live longer, sacrifice in terms of time and energy? Are you willing to make that kind of sacrifice in order to feel better? Or do you think things should just fall into place by themselves? Are you willing to put in time and energy to be in less pain if you're in pain? Are you willing to consider the possibility that you can visualize how you would like your body to be sculpted and then actually sculpt it to fit your visual image? What do you think about that? When we cut our skin, a healing process takes place and the skin comes together and often there is then little evidence that the cut was ever there to begin with. This process of healing, we take it for granted, it's involuntary. How can we voluntarily add the voluntary power of our mind to that involuntary healing process? What will happen if we could harness what's called the placebo effect? You know, the placebo effect where you get an aspirin, you're told it's something much stronger, and actually the much stronger thing happens because the mind takes over. Imagine if we could direct the mind can we direct the power of the mind to both repair and heal our physical bodies? These are important questions, and these are questions that our guest today, Dr. Stella Resnick, has applied to human sexuality. She's applied exercises, and not just theory, but things that people can do in order to improve their marriage and their sex life. Our guest today, Dr. Stella Resnick, is a clinical psychologist in private practice in Beverly Hills, California, and she's a certified sex therapist. Dr. Resnick teaches and trains therapists. She's appeared on many television programs, including Oprah, CNN, The O'Reilly Factor. She's also the author of another book called The Pleasure Zone. But today we're going to talk about her most, most recent book, The Heart of Desire, Keys to the pleasures of love. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Stella. Thank you, Richard. It's a delight to be here. Very glad to have you here. You've been working with couples for decades. And then you write this book, and you talk about something in the beginning of the book that's fascinating. You call it the love-lust dilemma. You say that the dis there's a disappointing fact that due to our sexual programming, 
the commitment of love itself can undermine, undermine sexual desire. Tell us more about that, please. <laughs> well, um, it's true that uh, sex is something that is very important uh, for our health and for the health of a relationship. So I love what you've been talking about in terms of looking at um, promoting health. And when we look at promoting health, what we really are looking at, and I think this is really an important factor that is often overlooked, what we're really uh, promoting is pleasure. Pleasure. And pleasure has a bad reputation. People think of pleasure as being something that is selfish and uh, associated with guilt and thinking only for yourself and and uh, and not looking at the fact that that health is about vitality, which is a pleasure. It feels good to to be healthy and and sex is an important part of an intimate relationship. Now we have uh, relationships with people that uh, are pleasurable without having any kind of sexual contact. You know, we might have a hug or something, but friendship, family. But intimacy, intimacy is about closeness. And closeness is about skin to skin, getting ourselves face to face, looking into each other's eyes, touching each other, experiencing pleasure and desire for one another. And most relationships, most intimate relationships that end in living together or in marriage involve sexual contact. Now, a lot of people have discovered that before they make a commitment to one another, the sex is great. And a lot of times that's what brings two people together more than anything else. And the sex is so good, they say, well, what else do we have going for us? But once Two people make a commitment to one another. Not uncommonly, they discover that their sexual relationship changes. And in my practice, working with a lot of couples, I've discovered that in many cases, the sexual experience, the sexual desire for one another, the frequency of sex, the, the pleasure of sex dies sometimes within, within a day of moving in together. Ooh. I have one couple that, that discovered that, that they had great sex, and then they made the commitment to one another. And, and this couple, when they came in to see me, they'd been together for 10 years. She said, the next day... The next day, the sex, the, the magnetism between us was gone. Ten years of good sex, they move in together all no, of a sudden? No, they had, they had a few months of good sex. Ah. They moved in together the next day. The, the, the magnetism, the excitement, the enthusiasm, and particularly his coming on to her, was gone. So to speak. And they so, came in to see me 10 years later. Oh, I see. So what happens? What happens? What, what is, you, you talk about early childhood history. 
uh, uh, that does something to the brain. Tell us about that. You see, one of the things that we know is that um, when um, babies are born, babies are born sexual. We know that. We know little boy babies have erections in the womb. We know little girl babies lubricate by three days of age. We know that uh, babies delight in touching their genitals. Um, They hold on to them. We know that toddlers rub um, genitals against the furniture or against your knee. Uh, It can be very embarrassing for parents. Um, So we know, and and children uh, masturbate um, if they're permitted to, if they haven't been shamed out of it, if their hand hasn't been slapped, if they haven't uh, received a scornful look. So one of the things that is that is programmed into our brain at a very early age is that sex is not permitted in the presence of family. Sex is not permitted in the presence of family. Right. Okay. That's, that's, that's all. And of course, the incest taboo, which is which is an important taboo, and of course we. We do want to discourage uh, family members from having sexual contact, uh, particularly older members and younger members. But um, but one of the things that happens is that we learn to turn off our sexual feelings at home, and we direct our libido, our sexual desire, to strangers, which is good for. Um, being able to um, propagate um, a healthy species. But what happens under those circumstances is that when people declare their commitment to one another, the beloved becomes family, particularly if they move in together and they start to treat each other like parent-child, brother-sister, or even among uh, gay and lesbian couples, the same kind of factors take root where they treat each other uh, as sisters or mother-daughter or father-son or brothers. So the same dynamic happens with gay couples as happens with um, opposite-sex couples where uh, the uh, familiarity, the living together, begins to breed a non-sexual kind of relationship. So the object of our romantic attachment becomes a family member and sexual desire drops off. Drops off. But, well, it drops off not just because of the, the, um, the dynamics between two people. You know, the, the wife asks the husband for permission to... Um, spend money. The husband asks the wife permission to go out with the boys. Um, They have quarrels about money. Uh, They get into the mundane things about fixing the leaks and and the the sink. Uh, There are all sorts of ways in which their day-to-day life then becomes more family-driven. And that's particularly the case when they actually start to have babies and they see one another now as parents rather than as lovers. So they, you know, your, your, your beloved hus- uh, man, the, the, the sexy stud that you, that you were having great sex with, you now see him as a father. Or you see the, the, the beautiful woman that, that 
that you were so turned on to is now a mother. Uh, and that brings up a lot of the um, programming that is uh, subtle, that a lot of people don't recognize the programming, um, but it also has to do with how they treat one another. Yes, years ago, Stella, I know that we were taught as parents not to show signs of sexual interest in each other in front of the children. Is that still going on? It's still going on, and it's a terrible idea. Now, I don't uh, recommend that parents get seductive with each other uh, or or overtly sexual in front of children because it, it will offend the, the children. But for the, even when children protest, uh, first of all, it's important for parents to talk about sex. It's important for parents to acknowledge sexual interest in children, not to, not to say, you know, don't touch yourself or what are you doing or that's disgusting or any of that, uh, but to say, how does that feel? It feels good, doesn't it? Yes, that's nice. Or to recommend that when children are masturbating, not to stop masturbating, but to do it in private. Um, and uh, certainly not to do it at school. Uh, so there are ways of shaping behavior rather than suppressing behavior. But a lot of the, the uh, training that has to do with sexuality is suppression rather than shaping. Now, how is it, Stella, uh, do you think for parents, say, to show affection to each other? I mean, how much affection One. do you think is okay for a husband and wife to show each other Kissing, hugging, you know, what, what do you think is okay? It's not only okay, it's important. It's important to allow children to recognize that physical affection and attraction is okay to see among parents, people who are committed to one another, because it allows them to to witness something that, that then that, can be part of their own programming. Yes, that, that people who love each other, who live together, uh, who are married to each other, who have children, are still sexually interested in one another, are physical, are physical with one another. That's so, important. So often in, in life, we see couples who are dating, and they're holding hands uh, when they're having dinner, there's a hand across the table. When they're walking around, they're holding hands or their arms around each other or they're kissing. And yet, it's also my experience and the experience of many people I've talked to, including many of my patients, that when people get married, they stop doing that. It, yes, they stop correct? doing that. So they stop acting like love, like lovers. What happens no. there? All of a sudden, you, you get this marriage thing, and then you stop holding, you stop doing these things in public. What, what, what's the story? Well, uh, it may be that um, they don't think they need to do anything like that anymore. Um, but it's unfortunate because the quality of their relationship will suffer if they're not having a. Um, if they're, it's not just having sex. It's not just having intercourse. It's really treating one another as a lover, as a lover, as somebody who is attractive, as somebody who is desirable, as somebody that you want to touch, that you want to be close to. And it's, it's very important to get close to one another. You know, a lot of times when people are raising kids, much of their contact is shoulder to shoulder rather than face-to-face -face 
eyeball to eyeball, chest to chest, belly to belly. Move a little bit away from your speaker, please, Stella. They were getting some kind of feedback. I just got a signal here. <laughs> Thank you. I'm getting. I'm, I'm talking about closeness, so I'm getting. And you're getting close to the. <laughs> that's very good. You know, I just started something different with my wife that's been very helpful that I think is appropriate right here. Typically, when we leave the house or we come into the house, we give each other a peck on the on the uh, kiss. And now what we're doing is we're holding the kiss for six seconds, and we're noticing that it really makes a difference. Holding the, just holding the kiss for six seconds instead of making, it a, making a peck. And in your book, you talk about the value of holding on to a hug for a certain period of time. Tell us a little about that. Well, um, that's very true, but I, I hope when you're uh, holding that kiss that you're not counting up to six because that's taking you away from the present no, we're not counting the numbers. Actually, what, we're, what I'm trying to do is figure out whether it's okay to, I don't know if I can say this on the air, but if it's okay to touch her with my tongue while I'm kissing her is more what's on my mind. Oh, it's very important. In fact, in my book, I talk about uh, little wet kisses, and I talk about the fact that, that, that those little pecks, those little pecks, good, hello and goodbye, are a big part of the problem because that that's the way you would you would kiss a relative, um, and uh, you know when my husband and I first got together and we moved in together, uh, he gave me one of those little pecks, and 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 I grabbed him and I said, "Where are you going?" <laughs> and I said, "That's not a kiss. That's a kiss off." Um, oh, that's little- a good one. That's a good. It's not a kiss. It's a kiss off. Very. That's great. <laughs> I want a real kiss, and I want a little wet kiss, at least a little wet kiss. And I want one in the morning, I want one in the evening, and I want one if we're around during the day. I want those hugs. I want a hug to linger. I want us to really press our bodies against one another. I want us to breathe together. I want us to, when we break our our embrace, I want us to look into each other's eyes. I want to smile at you. I want your smile. Those are the kinds of body-based experiences of intimacy that make a big difference in a relationship. And keep in mind, too, that a lot of what we think of as sex is not just intercourse, but it's sensuality, and that means looking into each other's eyes. That means getting close enough to smell one another because the scent of the other brings in also pheromones which affect the behavior, the desire of one to the other. And touching each other, feeling skin to skin is so important. A lot of people don't get naked with each other except when they're having sex. But it's important to be able to feel skin on skin at other times. Uh, that sex is not something that can be compartmentalized, and it's certainly not something that should begin in a bed because a bed is a place that we go unconscious. A, place is we, a, a bed is where we go to sleep. Sex, to really be good, needs to include flirting, playfulness, because we know that that's a very big part of what begins the, the, uh, the experience of sexual arousal, 
it's like going for a meal. You know, you talked about obesity. A lot of times people who are obese are eating too much food. They're eating it too fast, and they're not even enjoying it that much. If we sit down to a meal, we want to be able to look at the presentation. We want to be able to smell that food. And, and when we smell that food, when we bring in those volatile molecules from the food, it begins, it begins the digestion process before we even put the first forkful of food in the mouth. Uh, we begin to salivate. The same kind of thing happens with sex. We want to look at our partner. We want to, to play. Playfulness is a major, major, major factor in good sex. To be flirtatious, to, to dance together, to hold each other, to say loving things to one another, to put on some music and light some candles anywhere but from but in a bed just before going to sleep that is the worst time you can you can finish sex in a bed i mean when you want to get prone and you want to really be comfortable lying down yes get into the bed but before that there is so much that can be done that that can be done in any other room in the house and that would make it a lot more fun, would be, make it a lot more interesting than you're treating each other as lovers, not as um, performing your marital duty. The voice you were just listening to is the voice of Dr. Stella Resnick. We're here today interviewing her on her book, The Heart of Desire, on mind, body, health, and politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. Right before the interview, I told you that Dr. Resnick is going to be talking about actual things that you can do to enhance your desire and your pleasure together as a couple. And you're hearing her talk about actual things you can do. Really kiss. Really kiss and hold it. Hug one another. You hear what she's telling us. Allow each other to feel skin. Dance. Flirt. Play with one another. These are actual exercises, and we're going to go more now into deeper exercises. In, in, uh, on your book, in page uh, 25, you talk, step one, body-mind basics. I'd like you to take us through a couple of those, would you? You start out with, uh, name three qualities you would like more of in your emotional life. Will you tell us more about those? Um, page 25. <laughs> page, yeah. Do you have the book in front of you? <laughs> Yes, I have the book in front of me. Okay, page 25, personal goals. I don't want to steal your thunder. I'll read them out loud now because I think they're terrific. Okay, let's hear. Well, Dr. Stella Resnick says, name three qualities you would like more of in your emotional life with your partner and give some examples of how that might look. Remember, I, uh, I mentioned to you beforehand that how much I asked the question, how much time and energy are you willing to put into your personal health? Dr. Resnick is telling us that pleasure and sexual activity are integral to personal health, and here are some of the exercises to do. It's going to take some time, folks. You've got to read the book. Name three qualities you would like more of in your sexual life with your partner and give some examples of how they might look. Right. Now, let me say this. Um, these are the kinds of things that 
that you might want to share with your partner. But let me tell you that there are some key aspects of, of, of your personal health that have to do with breathing. Now, breathing is an involuntary activity. And you don't have to think about breathing. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to remind yourself, oh, I better take a breath or I'll pass out. You don't have to do that. It's automatically. However, many people, most people, have learned to hold their breath and to breathe very shallowly. A lot of times when we're in our head, we're breathing in a very shallow way. Breath is an important part of health in terms of down-regulating our stress, learning to experience when we're in a stressful place and how tension and contraction in our body narrows our experience, raises our, our heartbeat, and, and gives us tunnel vision. When we want to be in a loving Sensual. Move a little bit away from your speaker kindly, Stella. If we want to be in a loving, sensual, sexual experience with our partner, one of the things we have to begin to do, besides kiss, is breathe together. We need to learn how to take nice, deep sides because that's the beginning of being tuned into our body rather than to our head and to our thought process. We want to, in fact, in order to be sexual with our partners, we need to lower our consciousness. And that means we need to get in touch with our breath. We need to feel our chest rising and lowering. We need to feel our diaphragm, our belly we need to relax our bellies. A lot of people, particularly people who feel that they're overweight or they're ashamed of their bodies, they'll hold their belly in. Well, that is contrary to feeling sexual pleasure in the body because you're preventing the blood to, from flowing into the, the pelvic region, which has to be uh, filled with blood in order to get turned on. So, Breathing is a very important part. And so I do have exercises there that have to do with taking deep breaths and, and relaxing the belly. And, and when two people hold each other, to learn how to hold and breathe together. And one of the exercises that I have, besides each individual learning to breathe and take nice deep sighs, is for two people to hold each other, put their bodies together, see if they can put their cheeks together or as close as they can get together, lying down, and to breathe in and out together. And it's called breathing the one breath. It's a tantric exercise, or it's also been called matching breath. But the ability to get on the same wavelength in, in essence, really, you're bringing your body into entrainment. You're bringing your bodies together. And, and of course, 
saliva is a very important way of bringing your bodies together because when two people kiss and they, they have really nice wet kisses, tongues, that they're sharing saliva, they're sharing good biochemistry. They're sharing dopamine, which is the biochemistry of, of reward. They're sharing testosterone, which is the, um, the hormone of sexual desire for both men and women. They're sharing serotonin. So there's a lot of good biochemistry that they're sharing that's bringing them together. Um, because, you know, a lot of times one person is more interested in sex than the other, and uh, they're not on the same page. Yeah. You know, a lot of people, they hear some of this and they think to themselves, uh, gee, you know, I, I breathe all the time. Uh, what, what is there to learn about uh, breathing? But there's a lot to be learned about breathing, and you go into it in your book. But I'm going to move us on now to another topic because you have so many important topics in the book to cover. We're probably not going to get to even half of them today. Uh, I'm moving on now to something you talk about. Uh, you call it the uh, daily proximity, and you talk about how uh, proximity too much proximity can dampen sexual interest. So talk to us a little about that, please. Well, there's proximity and there's proximity. Um, uh, being, uh, feeling like you're tied at the hip, for example, that, uh, that you, uh, you owe it to your partner to um, uh, be available all the time, that, uh, uh, that uh, you... Um, uh, have to ask permission to be a part. I mean, that kind of proximity isn't great. Uh, and we we do need to be individuals. We uh, sometimes people uh, dampen their individuality in order to be able to get along with one another. We need to be able to tolerate each other's differences because uh, that's part of big part of what brought us together. So. So all of that is important uh, in order for two people to, to really be attracted to one another. The kind of proximity that does count is the kind of proximity where you're actually face-to-face. And when I work with couples, you know, a lot of couples therapists work with couples. The couple is sitting side-by-side side on a couch facing the therapist, and the entire session is with the couple talking to the therapist, each person talking separately, and how do you feel about that, and how do you feel what she just said, and how do you feel what he just said uh, for opposite-sex couples. Um, my couples, when, when I work with couples, they come in, they tell me how things are going, or if it's the first session, what the, the issues are, and then at some point, very early on, I will ask them to turn and face each other and to share with one another how they feel about the other right this moment. I bring them into the present moment. I bring them into face-to-face communication. And I ask them to share with one another where what they are feeling right now. So I get them into their bodies. A lot of times people live in their heads. Now, that's really unfortunate because the head is much smaller than the rest of the body. They treat the body as a pedestal for the the trophy, which is the head. But that's not the way it is. Our bodies really have our 
feelings, our emotions, our desires, our vitality. And, you know, again, you talked about obesity. Obesity, a lot of obesity is about, about um, uh, anesthetizing the body and, and, uh, and anesthetizing the body from pain. Now, um, we need to be able to feel the pleasure of being alive and the pleasure of being in a connection with somebody else. Being in a relationship is not just about a division of labor and having a partner to do tasks and chores with and, and get things done. Having a partner is also the ability to have a quality of life that involves pleasure and excitement and interest and curiosity and joy to be able to share those and not to only share them on holidays or special occasions, but to to have a quality of life every day that involves good feelings with one another, laughter, laughter. A lot of people think laughter is even better than sex in a relationship. I, I like both myself, but... Um, but the laughter is important, and, and of course, laughter is all about breathing. So uh, being able to take deep breaths, that means taking an involuntary behavior and making it voluntary. When you can take a voluntary breath, you can take an involuntary behavior, making it voluntary, you can learn to make other behaviors voluntary as well. So instead of being triggered with anger when your partner says something that hurts your feelings, you can take a breath and you can say, that hurt my feelings. And now you can talk about it rather than react in a negative way, perpetuate um, anger, and perpetuate what's called emotional contagion, which is really one person gets angry, yells, and says, how dare you? And the other says, how dare I? How dare you? So that's emotional contagion. But if you begin to breathe and relax and you talk to one another, now instead of having contagion of a negative feeling, you have contagion of a positive feeling, and contagion of a positive feeling is called empathy. And we begin to empathize with the other person's feelings. Now we can work things out. And, and what does it take? It takes taking that voluntary breath, <sighs> interrupting... <laughs> you you got to do that breath again a little further away from, from the speaker. <laughs> 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 but, and by, and by, by the way, each time you, when you're talking about the, the, the importance of breath, I, I'm reminded that over 200 years ago, Thomas Jefferson said the exact same thing that you're saying now. He said, when the emotions start to excite the senses, take slowly 10 breaths. And then somebody said to him, I don't know if it was Ben Franklin or one, one of the men at the convention, said, what happens if, 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 if 10 breaths doesn't do it and I'm still upset and angry? He says, then take 100 more. Wow, that's beautiful. Yeah, and that's what, and he, he, was, he was famous for knowing that. We're going to move on. So, a lot of what you've been talking about so far has been pleasure and sex and fun and flirty, sexual life in the context 
of having a partner. I'd like you to spend some time now, please, on talking about solo sex, about masturbation, about how one can have fun with oneself, and the importance, as you put out in your book, the importance of, of learning how to have fun with oneself sexually. Well, it appears that the key to being sexually active is having a sexual relation with oneself. Um, and the studies show, the uh, study, the big study, Sex in America, show that the people who have the best sex lives are also the people who tend to masturbate. Now, of course, we don't know what came first, you know, the high libido and the masturbating or masturbating, um, uh, uh, promoting libido. But we do know that in order to um, be able to be good lovers, for example, in order to be able to enjoy sex with a partner, we really need to understand our own bodies. And the best way to understand our own bodies is to be able to touch our bodies in a way that gives us pleasure. And, um, and it's very important for children to be able to masturbate. So I can't stress that enough. I know that that's going to seem like an anathema to a lot of people um, that may be listening to your program, but children have a right to have um, sexual pleasure. In fact, uh, Sigmund Freud talked about um, how little there was known about the erotic life of children. When I read that phrase, the erotic life of children, I was astounded. I had never read that anywhere else. And you certainly don't read that in contemporary books, but children have a right to pleasure. So uh, even if, if people did not learn to masturbate as a child, that's mostly women, because boys all learn to masturbate. But unfortunately, when boys learn to masturbate, often they learn to masturbate as quick as they can because they're afraid of getting caught. And that really reduces their ability to have lingering, lovely um, sex with a woman uh, who um, they're, they're, they're finished before she's even getting started. So it's very important for both men and women to have an active sex life with themselves in order to have an active sex life with a partner. And that means, you know, active doesn't mean every day, but it means to be able to recognize that when you get turned on, sometimes you may want to be with your partner, but sometimes you may just want to get off by yourself. And to learn how to touch yourself, what parts of your body um, really uh, what are uh, stimulated, uh, not just your genitals, of course, but, but to perhaps touch the rest of your body as well before you even touch your genitals. Um, to, for women to learn that women's anatomy is much more complicated than male anatomy uh, because it's internal. But women can have orgasms from three different parts of their um, genitalia, including the uterus. And so women really need to learn how to stimulate the clitoris. They learn, need to learn to find it. The clitoris is not just a little pea-shaped uh, organ at the top of the uh, vaginal opening, but it is a rather long wishbone-like um, uh, organ that uh, 
that the the P that is visible, sometimes visible, not always. Um, is That's right, not always. Actually, I've read that the the, the clitoris is uh, averages about seven inches in length. Seven to eight inches in length. Isn't that remarkable? Spread out. Yes. yes. It's a very large organ, and it can be stimulated not just by touching the glands, which is like the glands of the penis, because the, the clitoris it has a shaft. It, it's, it's like a small penis, um, and uh, the clitoris and the penis are analogous uh, in the fetus. Um, but it, it has the, the uh, glands, the shaft, and then the two legs that come out of from there, and then there are two bulbs underneath. So it's, it's quite a large organ, and it can be stimulated not just by touching the, the, um, the head of the clitoris, but by squeezing the vulva, the outside of the, uh, the female organ is called the vulva, the inside is called the vagina, and by squeezing the two lips together, um, and uh, that also will stimulate the clitoris. You know, in preparing for today's interview uh, and doing some research, I see that the uh, the average size of a man's penis uh, is listed to be somewhere between five and six and a half inches. And as you just pointed out, the, the average uh, size of the clitoris is somewhere between seven and eight inches, which is that the, the, the clitoris rather than this little tiny thing that's been talked about, I think, for decades, is actually longer than a man's penis. And that, in some way, must relate to time to orgasm, which is very confusing to me, and maybe you could shed some light on this, Stella. All the research indicates that males orgasm much more rapidly than females. And some of the research indicates it's a matter of a difference of minutes, and some of the research seems to indicate it's a matter of more minutes. But all of the research that I've read, and tell me if, if, if you have a different opinion or you've seen different things, please, indicates that men orgasm much more rapidly. It, it, do you, is that what you, your understanding is as well? Well, let's put it this way. Uh, when boys learn to masturbate, they learn to masturbate as quick as they can and aim for the uh, ejaculation. Now, uh, that's good for um, perpetuating the species, but it's not good for being a great lover. And it's not even that good for really uh, enjoying the nuances of sex because there's a lot more to sex than just coming. Now, um, when men learn to slow down the ejaculation... By, by the way, I'm not sure we're allowed to use that word. We may or may not be able to use that word you just used on the radio, so could we call, please call it um, uh, orgasming from now on. I want to make just uh, clear here so we don't get in trouble. Sure. Thank you. Um, I'm not sure which word I used that wasn't permitted. Well, it was a, I think it might have been a vernacular for orgasm. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Um, Let's see, where was that? Uh, we're we're oh, talking yeah. about the difference in the amount of time because oh, it looks oh, to me like women are, are genetically programmed to be cheated. Well, if, men, uh, if men have these orgasms in, in a minute or two, the average man in the United States, somewhere between a minute and a half and two and a half minutes, where does it leave women and why do women continue doing it if the men finish so quickly and disappear and go to sleep? Well... Uh, happily, uh, not all men are, are doing that. Well, but we're talking averages across the country. Number one. But n number two, um, 
let's be real clear. Uh, when a man uh, orgasms Thank you. quickly, <laughs> uh, it, it's, he's not getting as much out of this experience as he could. He's, what he's getting is an experiential sleeping pill. Um, but he's, he's not getting the full experience of being aroused as much as he can be to the point where when he has an orgasm, that it really fills his body. And men actually can learn to have multiple orgasms. Um, and, and, of course, one of the best ways of learning how to do that is by masturbating uh, and, and stopping just prior to the point of inevitability. And that enables him to learn how to relax back into the pleasure of the experience to allow the experience to spread through the body so that the final result isn't just a local sensation in the genitals. Now, females, what makes it so difficult for females to have an orgasm? First of all, a lot of uh, uh, females don't masturbate as girls, and that is a, a great limitation. Of course, there's no skill training, you're saying. You're saying that masturbation is a kind of skill training for later lovemaking with another person. That's right. They learn to turn off their sexual desire because it's not ladylike. It's not ladylike. Uh, have, having an orgasm for a man, uh, we might say, is ego-syntonic. It's, it's, a man feels like a stud. But for a woman, it's in some, for some females, it's ego-dystonic because it feels like they're not ladylike, they're not pure, um, they're, uh, they're, they're not um, uh, chaste, well, I don't know, whatever. Well, so you're saying that we're still dealing with very heavy morality in the year 2016 uh, and, 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 and how it affects, but even more so, young women. It's in our bodies, and it's been passed down from body to body. It's an intergenerational transmission of shame, of sexual shame. And it, men have it as well. Men have it as well. So uh, now that's one aspect of it. But another aspect of it is that the female anatomy takes much more uh, uh, blood engorgement in order to fully, fully engorge the whole area in order to have an orgasm. But keep in mind that the female is capable of a far greater orgasm and that uh, an orgasm that goes on and on and on. Females are capable not only of multiple orgasms, but they're capable of having orgasms until they, they are physically exhausted and stop and call it a stop. Men have an orgasm and they're kaput. Yeah, you said go to sleep. I don't know who thought this whole thing up, Stella, but it sounds like some kind of a cruel joke where the men orgasm more rapidly and it's like a sleeping pill and women are capable of going on to having multiple orgasms and they could go on for a very long time, but who do they go on with when the guy just fell asleep after a minute and a half? This is a cruel joke. Well, and one other thing that I want to say here that's really important, men are often focused on performance. They're often focused on, on I don't know if I can say this, I'll say it. Um, Careful, don't it, want to get us fined. 
getting it on and getting it off and getting to sleep. Getting it on, getting it off, getting to sleep. And getting it on means having an erection and, and an orgasm, okay? Um, that's a performance. When, when men get more into the experience of what is actually taking place, getting into the sensuality of it, getting into the kissing, couples who don't kiss don't have sex. Stop right there. That's a great, I've just got a big signal. I'm sorry to cut you off, but I got a signal we have to stop. On that line of kissing is so important, and that's Dr. Stella Resnick. Her book is The Heart of Desire. Wiley Press. You can find it at Amazon. Take a look at it. I'm going to end with a quote from her book. This is the Surgeon General of the United States, Dr. Satcher. This is from page 136 on Dr. Resnick's book. The Surgeon General of the United States saying, sexual health is inextricably bound to both physical and mental health. Sexual health is not limited to the absence of disease. It's important. It includes freedom from sexual abuse. People need to derive pleasure and to reproduce if they choose. That's the section, uh, Surgeon General of the United States in Dr. Resnick's book. Stella, thank you so much for being with us today, and thank you all for listening to today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, which is made possible by our KZYX staff and our in-studio engineer, my dear friend Mike Delora. Listen in in exactly two weeks at 9 o'clock Pacific Daylight Time, Until then, this is Dr. Richard Miller reminding you that good health is worth working hard for, and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness.